Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Glad you're here this week and ready to study the Bible with us. Uh, we've got lots of your questions saved up, and we're going to try to answer as many as we can today. Uh, hopefully we'll get to it in the weeks ahead. We're always a little bit behind because of taping and the closed captioning and all that, but we'll get to it as quickly as we can. You'll see a phone number and a website at the bottom of your screen. Use those any time to get in contact with us and tell us what you'd like us to talk about on Know Your Bible, and we'll try to answer it for you. And when I say we, I mean me, Steve Tandy, and my friend Toby Levering. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Steve. Glad you're here and studied up and ready to go. We're going to give our viewers their question for the day, and then we'll get to their questions. Uh, first question of the day is for our folks at home. What island was Paul shipwrecked on? And we'll tell you about his shipwreck and where that island was at the end of the program, see if you knew that little bit of Bible information. It looks like I drew the first one, so let's see if we can figure this out. Viewer wants to know, when are souls created? Do they exist before conception? All right. Uh, there is a physical part of the body and a spiritual part of the living being that are put together at conception, we believe. Uh, viewer's question is, that life force, that spirit, that soul, whatever you want to call it, and we won't try to get too technical about that today. We understand there's a spiritual part of us. When's that spiritual part created? Uh, the only two options are God creates it when he needs it for a new human, or he's already created it and it's in stock waiting. Uh, maybe he has a warehouse full of spirits, souls that he's ready to put into human babies. Or maybe he makes it, creates it at the point when he needs it. It's the only two options, and the Bible gives us absolutely no clue as to which it is. Uh, people can argue about it all they want, but they're not going to figure it out uh, because God hasn't told us. We do have one account that kind of helps us understand this in a way. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 uh, says, And the Lord, this is the creation of Adam, by the way, says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So there we have the picture of the physical part, the dust part, and God breathed the breath of life into Adam and became a living soul. Now, the problem with that is that's a one-time event. Uh, that's when we ended up with a full-grown man uh, at the creation point, and didn't happen that way again. Uh, from then on, things went through the natural process, uh, babies gestating for nine months and then being born, and the Bible doesn't tell us anything about when the creation of that soul happens. Now, we do know 
that a child in the womb is certainly considered human by God, considered a living being. Uh, David said, you knew me in the womb. Uh, you knit me together in the womb. You knew all about me. Other prophets said, you knew me in the womb and you had a purpose for me. Uh, John the baptizer, the baby that would become John the baptizer, very interesting story. It said when Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to see Elizabeth, who was bearing John, uh, and told her she was pregnant, uh, that the baby leapt in her womb with joy. Uh, So John the baptizer, as a baby, uh, as an unborn baby, was the first to recognize the Son of God. So uh, the Bible just talks about children in the womb that way, that they are living beings and alive and certainly not what our society is. Uh, messed things up with, but that's the way the Bible talks about it. But the original question, where's that soul come, when does that soul come into existence? The Bible hadn't said anything about it. God hadn't let me in on that, so I, I can't answer it for you. We, we can ask when we get there, maybe. <laughs> okay, the next question is a question regarding prayer. The viewer asks, is it okay to pray in silence, and when should you pray out loud? Well, for people who are God-fearing people, who love the Lord, and who are seeking His heart, uh, you, we should be prayerful people. Uh, that's just uh, the way that Jesus modeled faith for us, and we certainly know that Christians practice that. In fact, First uh, Thessalonians 5.17 says that we are to pray continually uh, and to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, pray, our prayer life is something that's important. It matters to God because it's our connection. It's our personal, private connection to the Lord. And so, uh, yes, it is certainly okay to pray in silence. Uh, and uh, that's probably the type of prayer that's done more often than not. Um, but... That doesn't mean that public prayer is bad. Uh, Public prayers are probably more often you'll find in a setting where there's a group of people, maybe a family around a dinner table or a a church meeting together uh, or a family gathering of some type. Uh, Any sort of public venue where you want to have a prayer and you need one person to direct the minds and the hearts of all the people praying. And uh, that's probably when public prayer is most often used. You'll find both examples in the Bible, people praying privately and people praying publicly. We know that Jesus did both. We know that the apostles did both. So uh, it is okay to pray in silent uh, silence, and you can probably pray out loud any time, but obviously the most uh, common uh, scenario when that's uh, seen is a pu- leading the, uh, a group in public prayer. Now, one note about that is uh, for a person leading a prayer, uh, it should never be about you. It should never be about what you're saying. You shouldn't be praying to impress or, or to show other people how righteous you are, how close to God you are. A prayer uh, should be uh, very simply uh, sincere and reverent should be from the heart and in fear of the Lord, seeking uh, to express your heart 
but aligning your heart to God's will. And uh, I think if we keep that in mind, public or private, we'll do well in prayer. Uh, let's read what Jesus said about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Uh, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So prayer is important, and both types of prayer, private and public, are just fine. Just do it from the right spirit with sincerity and reverence. All righty. Viewers got a friend, a friend who is an atheist, and our viewers know, can that atheist friend be saved in spite of not believing? Well, we got a lot of hypothetical questions on this program about salvation. People say, well... Bible says this, but what if somebody does this? And what if somebody doesn't do this? Will God still save them? Will God still send them to hell, etc.? So we get a lot of hypothetical questions, and we usually answer those by saying we're not in the judging business. Uh, God will figure all that out, and He understands a person's heart, and He'll know what they could do and couldn't do, and then all of that. But on this one, uh, we don't have to get in the judging business, but God's pretty clear on this point. Uh, so let's just see what he says about it in the book of Hebrews. The writer said in verses 11, chapter 11, verse 6, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Uh, so the writer's just making it pretty clear here. He says, without believing in God, without some faith, uh, it's impossible because if you want a relationship with God, uh, if you want anything to do with him, you got to believe in him. you got to believe that he exists. That's where it starts. So the Bible's pretty clear on that. Uh, I'm sorry if your friend remains uh, an atheist, an unbeliever in God uh, till the end of his life. The writer of Hebrews is pretty clear that he hasn't pleased God. He doesn't want a relationship with God. Now, that's not because God doesn't love him. John 3.16 says that God loved the whole world so much uh, that he gave his only begotten son. So God loves your atheist friend and wants to have a relationship with him. Uh, but if that friend has convinced himself that God doesn't even exist, uh, there's no hope for a relationship there. God gave us free will. <coughs> Uh, he won't override that free will. Free will involves the ability to love God, and it also involves the ability to reject Him, to deny Him, uh, to not even believe in Him. Uh, that's the only way He could have a true loving relationship. Uh, if we force our children to say they love us and all that, that's not a relationship. We have to let them decide. They choose to love. So that's what free will is about. And if your viewer uh, friend has used his free will to deny God, uh, then it's impossible to please God. I'll take just a moment to show you a way to study the Bible beyond this program. Uh, we're glad you're with us each week and learning a little bit about the Bible. Uh, we learn a little bit about the Bible each week, too, because there's always a new and different question. Uh, but studying the Bible by yourself, just getting familiar with the Bible is a good thing. And we've got some tools that will help you do that. and happy to provide them for you absolutely free of charge. 
This is the first set of lessons. There are eight lessons in it. It's a good overview of the Bible, good basic Bible study. Once you get through that, we've got some more advanced courses that we're happy to send to you. And uh, we pay the postage both ways, so there's no cost to you at all except a little bit of your time and interest. And you'll learn a lot about the Bible with these tools. Uh, we've recently added an online study that a lot of people are interested in. Uh, just go to oneway.worldbibleschool.org and that'll hook you up with us and we'll get you started on some courses that you can take on your phone, your tablet, your PC, uh, whatever device you've got. You don't need a lot of paper and a lot of mail. You can just do it online. So a lot of people are interested in that and we're glad to provide it. So use a phone number at the bottom of the screen or the website we showed you there or the Know Your Bible website and tell us you'd like the free course and we'll get them started for you. All right, Toby, what have you got here? We get a lot of Bible questions on this program. This viewer wants to know about the Bible itself. Where did the word Bible come from, and who put the Old and the New Testaments together? <clears throat> well, to answer your question, first of all, the, the word Bible in the English is a, the, the translation of that in the English. The Latin uh, is simply a word that means books. Uh, if you wrote a paper in college or if you've ever written a paper, you probably wrote a bibliography, which is a writing down of the books, the source that you use to come to your conclusions. Um, the Bible, of course, is, a, is one collection of 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a period of about 1,600 years. Of course, they didn't write it of their own opinion. Uh, they were guided, the Scripture tells us, by the Spirit. God was involved in that process. Uh, the term for all of them, there are lots of books that that uh, were written around the time of Bible events taking place. Um, but uh, amongst the ones that are the accepted ones, we have a term for that called the canon, which simply means the standard. And it's the group of books that are recognized as the standard of Holy Scripture. Um, church fathers uh, generally considered them to be breathed by God, uh, to be 100% accurate, and to be... Uh, uh, to fit into the, the overall arc of the story, the narrative of Scripture uh, that's useful uh, for all of God's purposes for increasing the faith of men throughout the centuries. Um, the Bible itself, and this is a big misunderstanding, uh, caused the source of many confusion, confusion and questions on this program, is that there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the difference between those, the Old Testament was written, uh, directed to God's people through the covenant of Moses, given by Moses to the Israelites. The New Testament given uh, to all who are in Christ. And through Christ, we have a, a new relationship. Uh, uh, covenant with the Lord uh, by His blood. Um, the uh, books of the canon were selected by the church fathers to answer specifically, you said, who put them together, uh, and they did that in the early, early centuries of the church, and they based that selection. It wasn't just haphazardly. They liked this book. They didn't like that book. It was uh, proof of divine inspiration, uh, uh, generally accepted authorship, 
uh, authenticity, factual accuracy. They had a, a, a litmus test of things that they were looking for that met the qualifications as to what would be accepted for the canon. Uh, to, just to give you a little timeline, you ask uh, who, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about when, uh, Christ and, of course, the apostles, those, bo- those original writings that produced uh, the New Testament, at least, uh, were all written in the first century, and we call those the prime source. We don't have any any of those prime, the original letters that were written, we have copies of those. Uh, the church fathers, these are those who had a connection to the apostles and were in some cases taught by the apostles. Uh, they uh, were the ones that gathered these writings, the, the copies that they had together. Uh, around about 100 A.D., by about the first century, all those New Testament books, the canon, as we would call it, were written. And by about, depending on the research, somewhere between 125 and 150 A.D., uh, there there were the accepted standard of all the books that were generally considered to be Scripture. And by about 400 A.D., those church fathers had gathered them, formulate, pulled them together into what we would call the Bible. It was put together in what we would know as the New Testament. So probably maybe more history than you wanted, but that's a little bit as quick as we can give it in the history of what the word Bible means, where it comes from, and who put it together. So I hope that's helpful to you. Okay, thank you. If you ever want to know about communion, how often should communion be taken? Uh, some churches do it monthly or quarterly. Well, our viewers right. There are differences among different uh, denominations, different religions, uh, uh, the groups that partake of a communion or a Lord's Supper uh, weekly, some monthly, some quarterly. Uh, so a viewer wants to know, well, what's the Bible say, which is what this program is for? <clears throat> well, technically, the Bible doesn't say. Uh, if you read the account in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul's telling the Corinthians about when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which is the most complete history of it, uh, Jesus himself said, this bread represents my body, and this uh, juice represents my blood, and whenever you take it, remember me. He said, whenever. Uh, he may have meant every time you take it. Uh, but he didn't specify a time. Uh, he didn't say on Sunday morning at 10.30 when you take this every week. Uh, so we don't have that kind of technical, specific instruction. Uh, what we have is some indication in the New Testament that the early Christians uh, did it on the, every first day of the week. Uh, the most a uh, clear example is in Acts chapter 20. Uh, Paul and Timothy and Luke were on a missionary journey, and they went to Troas. And Luke records that they got to Troas, and they stayed seven days. And then he said since they wanted to leave the next day, uh, but they stayed for the first day. And in Acts 20 and verse 7, let's look at it on the screen, uh, Luke says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Uh, They'd gotten there almost a week before. Uh, They wanted to leave the next day, but they stayed. And on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. So that was the pattern that seemed to be what they did. Now, we've got that in the Bible, but we also have a lot of secular history, not inspired history. But we've got letters written by a lot of early Christians. And all of that indicates, and 
much more clearly than Acts 27, uh, that every first day of the week, Christians got together and partook of the Lord's Supper. They remembered him with the emblems, and they did some other things and sang and prayed, and that's what they did every first day of the week. So uh, we've got those things put together, and we believe that we ought to do it every first day of the week. Uh, Some people argue that, well, it gets too common. We shouldn't do it every week. We'll get routine in it. Uh, Not if we do it properly. It doesn't get routine at all. Uh, Weekly, we need a reminder of Jesus at least. So every first day of the week is a good practice, and we believe the Bible and secular history support that. We take just a moment and invite you to visit the Church of Christ near you. Uh, This program's put on the air and produced and kept on the air by Churches of Christ in your community, and we like to thank some of them each week. Uh, today, let me thank a couple in central, south-central Kansas, Kingman and Pratt, uh, both longtime supporters of Know Your Bible, and we appreciate both of them. Uh, if you live in one of those communities and know somebody that attends the Church of Christ, uh, tell them that you heard about them on Know Your Bible and you watch the program each week and uh, you appreciate it and thank them for keeping us on the air. And we'll add our thanks to that and point out also that whatever community you live in, uh, if you're watching in one of our markets, you probably got a Church of Christ near you and invite you to drop in and visit them sometime. You'd be warmly welcomed. Okay, uh, you're asked the question about which John wrote the book of Revelation. Well, we get a lot of questions from time to time here on the program about the book of Revelation, and this viewer wants to know who the author is. Uh, Obviously, they know it's John, but there were a couple of Johns in the New Testament. Uh, One, uh, of course, common name then, common name now. Uh, John the Baptist is is one well-known John in the New Testament, Jesus' cousin. Uh, But, of course, he was beheaded in the the, uh, ministry of Jesus uh, by Herod. And uh, then there was John the Apostle. And John the Apostle is the one who wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, early church tradition, several witnesses, the, the, gospel, uh, the, the, the account that says, I, John, uh, saw these things. So it's similar to the Gospel of John in terms of style. The Gospel of John is highly, uh, there's a lot of visual imagery. He uses a lot of word pictures and metaphors, and certainly Revelation is the same. Um, and so, yes, there's a lot of evidence, and there's virtually no disputing that John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, John wrote, uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. I hope that's helpful to you in your study. All righty. I could answer that for you. There's an old gospel song called John the Revelator. John the Revelator. So yeah. who wrote the Revelation? John the Revelator. I'll, I'll let you sing but that one. <laughs> 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 uh, maybe we'll skip that part today. <laughs> Let's get to the next question. Viewer wants to know about A.D. What does A.D. refer to? Is it after Christ's death? If so, what's the period after his birth? All right, the viewer's pretty sharp here. Our viewers heard what a lot of people have heard, that B.C. and A.D., uh, B.C. means before Christ, and A.D. means after death. And our viewers said, well, if that's true, 
there's 30 years there unaccounted for uh, before Christ was born and then after his death. What about the period when he was alive? Well, our viewer is right. We can't leave that out. So uh, B.C. does mean before Christ. So we count time backwards from the day Jesus was born. Uh, one year B.C., two years B.C., a hundred years B.C. Uh, was before Christ. A.D., however, does not mean after death. A.D. is a Latin term, Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And why we put it in Latin, I don't know, but that's what we did. So A.D. means Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So before Christ, before he was born, then the year he was born uh, was year one, I guess. I don't know. if he, I don't think they had a year zero, so it had been year one, uh, Anno Domini, the first year of our Lord. So that's the way we count time. Uh, 100 years B.C. was 100 years before Christ. The year 10 A.D. Uh, was the 10th year after the year of our Lord, 10th year after his uh, birth. So, Anno Domini, year of our Lord, not after his death. All right, got time for one more. I All think, right, Toby. we have a cremation question. If you're a regular viewer of the program, you know we get quite a few of these. I think we just had one last week. In fact, the question is, is cremation right or wrong according to the Bible? Well, a cremation, of course, is the practice of the, of, of the, the burning of the, the deceased, of the body that's of the deceased, and it's becoming a, an increasingly more popular option, especially usually it's cheaper than a, a full-blown uh, funeral and, and em, em, uh, embalming and all of that. And so a lot of families consider that as an option. And it's uh, much more widely practiced than it has been in the past, but still, it makes some people uncomfortable, and they're not quite sure if it, if they need to be careful with this. Certainly, as it relates to a spiritual matter, can I, will my resurrection body come back if it goes to ashes? And as we say on the program, uh, you know, the, the, the state of your decomposed body, whatever state it's in, God will have zero problem resurrecting it, uh, whether it's buried or it's in ashes. Or, uh, uh, you know, all the different ways your body could could be disposed of. God, if you're in Christ, can resurrect that just fine, and it's not going to uh, matter to him. He has the power to, to bring it back. So uh, we say on this program, the Bible does not really say much concerning cremation. There's a, an a account of it. Uh, one well-known one is in 1 Samuel 31, but it does not uh, condemn it. It does not condone it. It just simply states it as a matter of fact. In the Bible, that's really all it has to say on the subject. It doesn't give us any direction one way or the other. So we take that to view that we have freedom uh, to choose what we wish in, in the, whatever your wishes are. And that's the main thing that we tell you to make sure to discuss this as a family, uh, to have, make it very clear, to write it down, to make your wishes known, uh, because it's your family that will be making the ultimate decision. And it really is helpful to them if they know exactly what you want and what your wishes are. So maybe you've talked about it. Maybe you haven't talked about it. If, if you haven't, you need to. And if you've talked about it, you know, write it down and, and just make it clear to everyone this is what you want. And uh, then your family can carry out your wishes. So it's a matter of preference. Just simply make sure you uh, make your preferences and your wishes known. And uh, 
And that's uh, all we can tell you on that. Let's look at one scripture from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Uh, the status of our physical body has no connection to the spiritual kingdom. So I hope that's helpful to you uh, in that matter. All right, let's make sure we get our trivia question answered today. And it's about a shipwreck. Uh, what island was Paul shipwrecked on? And it was the island of Malta. And you read the story of the shipwreck in Acts 27. Then the first verse of Acts 28 says, When we got ashore, we found out that the island was Malta. But Acts 27 is more interesting. It's about the, the horrible storm at sea and the shipwreck. So read up on that. We're glad you've been with us today and hope you come back next week. We're going to answer some more of your questions then. Till then, you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.